Welcome to Coaching Leaders, the podcast that is dedicated to helping managers become better coaches. Today's episode is powered by One Minute Feedback. If you face challenges with receiving feedback that is helpful and encouraging, then you will want to try One Minute Feedback. One Minute Feedback's cloud-based feedback survey helps you get supportive feedback from your colleagues and external partners. The feedback you receive using One Minute Feedback is unique in that it helps you understand what you should keep doing and highlight areas of your courage to grow. Hi guys. I'm your host, Rafa Byron, and this is a Coaching Leaders podcast. In today's episode, I have a pleasure to talk with Dan and learn tons from him. Why? Because as a manager, I had to develop high-performing teams, and I didn't know how to verbalize it in order how to do it as a former athlete. I just knew that somehow I can do it. Dan today will help me and you guys understand what it takes to develop high-performing teams. Dan is a consultant psychologist, author of four books, also fellow podcast podcaster and wow i'm super excited so thank you very much dan for being today with me no problem at all no problem uh just great to be on and having this conversation uh i'll be honest with you i've linked with you probably about a year ago or so and every single post that i read from you is a huge lesson from me in all honesty all i have to do is to read post by post and we're gonna learn tons from you just just recently you've posted that if you were a manager you would engage in mindset conversation with your team and you would perform in high performance mindset with your team now i know you're working with the athletes and with the sport teams but in my opinion there is not much difference between what coach in this elite sport has to do, what manager has to do in order to develop high-performing teams. So maybe could you explain to me a little bit more what does it mean to develop and how do you develop high-performing mindsets within the team? That's a big question, Raf. Um, hmm. And as, as, as you've mentioned, the I don't even think it's the vast majority. I think everything I write is is on sport. Um, I rarely uh, go into any other other worlds. So you, you'll you'll have to help me here, to be honest with you, so we can work together on this. Um, exactly. I, will. Oh, well, I, I I do agree with you that um, you know sport and business do collide, and there's. Definitely since, I don't know, the 1980s, a lot of sports psychologists have worked in the field of organizational psychology or worked with businesses in corporations. So there's definitely crossover skills. Um, however, one always has to remember, ultimately, sports is about uh, moving and uh, activity and uh, you don't do many somersaults and um, I don't know golf I suppose some people do do golf swings in the office but uh, <laughs> um, you know sport is about having the psychological ability to learn um, uh, to, to, to engage and participate in active active sport activities to learn to learn movement, to learn movement skills, motor behavior, as we'd call it, and then ultimately to perform these skills, this, these motor behaviors under pressure. And that's my world every single day. But as you say, there's, there's crossover skills into, into, into the corporate world and management. Look, when I talk about helping people work on their mindset, I want them to, I really would split this into three areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think the first area may be more of a, a sports piece, but I'll, I'll, I'll try and bring it towards the corporate sector. I talk about three Ps. If you're a sports coach, if you're a sports leader, and I guess if you're a business leader, there's, there's three Ps, participation, progression, and performance. Participation, progression, 
and performance. That participation piece is the engagement piece. So if you're a sports coach or sports leader, you want to help your players, your people engage in every activity, in every session. And I dare say it would be the same for a leader in a business. We want our people. We want our people to engage, don't we? Mm -hmm. We want them, you know, we don't want them to be um, overly distracted. Um, We don't want them to be bored. We want them to be involved. We want them to be, to come up with ideas. We want them to team. We want them to lead themselves and to lead others. We want them to form relationships. We want them to to complete their work, that we want them to have a great time in our organization. So that to me is the participation piece. And I think every leader is involved in helping massage that participation piece. And then we've got the progression piece, which actually I just wonder here, thinking out loud, progression in sport is enormous. You know, we want our players as coaches, as leaders and coaching leaders in sport, in many respects, teaching and learning are our go-to positions. We, we have to be great teachers and we have to help our participants be great learners. We want them to improve at their sport and to grow, to develop. And I just wonder if that's a P, a progression, if that's a piece in the corporate sector that's not always talked about as much or not done as effectively maybe, you know, the leader helping people to grow, uh, to get better, in their mm-hmm. in their respective positions at the respective tasks that they have, but to grow as people as well. And then we've got the final P, which is the performance piece, which I suppose really, <laughs> I've kind of gone off on one, I suppose, but coming back to your original question about mindset, uh, this is really where the heavy lifting is done on mindset is, is performance in sports. It's when Saturday comes, if you like. It, it, it's when the footballer, uh, the rugby player, uh, is competing on the pitch. It's when the basketball player competes on the, uh, you know, on the court. It's when the golfer is on, uh, is competing on the course. Having the best mental framework that they can have that's going to help them optimize their physical skills, their technical mm-hmm. skills, their ta- tactical uh, acuity. Um, and I'm guessing again in the business world, what are your performance moments? You know, your performance moments are probably around sales pitching and delivering meetings, having awkward conversations with with customers and clients mm-hmm. um, I mean it could be a, 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 a conversation with a colleague or a phone call uh, taking a phone call with somebody from external from the firm so those to me are your performance moments have you got a great mental framework that helps you to uh, helps you to be able to execute those performance moments so participation progression and performance can we help people engage can we help them learn and grow can we help them perform compete execute their skills under pressure. I can uh, definitely tell that is that is overlay. It's exactly the same in the workplace. Companies want to progress and move forward. And I'm guessing there's lots of conversations around how we all progress, but there's less conversations around how you can progress as an employee, as an individual. And I'm guessing it's because not everyone is comfortable around coaching and developing others. Now, I've been fortunate to have a one leader who obviously understood that aspect and told me how to do that. But prior to that was very difficult for me because we don't teach managers how they can focus on people's mindsets and how can we help them perform at their best. Whatever their job description and role is, we have to be fresh and sharp in our minds in order to show up and develop that excellence. So, I mean, performing with that excellence, you talk a lot about you know mood showing up in the game with the right mood. Same thing with the managers, they have to create an environment 
and then they have to help employees have be in that framework as well. So there's definitely a lot of similarities, if not like for like, if I'm honest with you, I definitely try to copy what I've learned as a wrestler into what I've been doing as a, as a manager. And it pretty much works. As soon as you learn how to translate one to another and learn the differences, it definitely works. So in terms of that sort of mindset, and let's just talk a little bit about mood topic, because you, you like I mentioned, talk a lot, a lot about it. How would you create or help your football players or, or athletes showing up in a, in a training session, in a competition, in the right framework, in the mood, and creating for themselves that mood? Or maybe it's something else than creating it for yourself. Maybe someone else has to do that. Sure. Look, I think it's a really good question. I think that, you know, as a precursor to my answer to build on this idea of mood and mood being an influence of performance, what a lot of people don't always consider is this notion that moods happen to you. So a low mood happens to you. People don't do low mood on purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, anxiety happens to you. A drop in confidence can happen to you. A distraction happens to you human systems are are complex you know from our biological to our psychological right away through to how our environment impacts our biology and our psychology so as human beings we work on several layers so we're complex creatures and i come back to this notion of i think because we're complex dynamic creatures always changing the experience mm -hmm. we have of living in our body is always changing and so we need to have if we want some kind of consistency we need to have in my opinion a a mental framework that enables us to be able to i think if i was to strip performance psychology back into three key features i would say it would be or, or mental skills if you like it would be uh, attention so the capacity to pay attention and that's everybody everywhere in anything that they do we need the capacity to pay attention right yes <laughs> if we're easily distracted we're not going to get our work done we're not going to listen in closely to what somebody is saying and thus we're not going to be able to respond appropriately so the capacity to pay attention the Ability to deliver at the right intensity, which is a close relation to attention, but isn't always spoken about. Look at it this way. I could be doing a piece of work for, say, a couple of hours, say writing. I do a lot of writing. I can find myself wilting after about an hour or so, mm -hmm. and I probably need to take a break. But I can, I can feel my intensity level drop, and then that hands over to attention. So when my intensity levels drop, I can get easily distracted. I get easily distracted. I come away from my task at hand. And then there's a third element here of intent. So to execute with positive intent. This is particularly pertinent in the world of sports. So it's to execute my actions positively, to pass positively, to throw positively, um, to kick positively, to move positively. Mm -hmm. That's really important. And I suppose the crossover there in the business world is just to, to deliver positively, to be to act in a way when you're in a you know, a, a two-way conversation or a group meeting or or delivering on a presentation to deliver in a in, yeah. it, with positive intent. I'm sure people can picture that. So three skills, attention, intensity, intent. So that's what we want in any performance environment. So how do we do that? You asked me, well, well, how do you do that? Because low mood gets in the way of attention, intensity, and intent. Yeah. Uh, 
confidence does as well. Distraction does. Uh, anxiety does. So h- how do we do it? We need this mental framework. Now, that mental framework could be far-reaching. And when I sit down with somebody, we start to talk about what their framework can look like. And with athletes, I'll often start with, a, with this question. Tell me about you at your best. Mm-hmm. Tell me about you at your best. What does that look like? What does that feel like? What are others seeing when you're at your best? So if I take a cerebral bit of work, I'm doing that, that two hours bit of writing. I've probably got a clear desk. I haven't got any distractions around me to begin with. I've got some water on my desk and my eyes are fixed firmly on the screen and I'm absorbed in what I'm doing. And if I feel like I'm coming out of that, I, I, I come back in. That, that would be a basic rundown. I could talk more, more about that, but that would be a basic rundown of me at my best, at my desk, doing writing for a couple of hours. That's so very, I wanna... It's very detailed, very, very specific. You really envision it and picture the perfect environment around you when you are at your best when you're writing, right? Yeah, very... and, and that's what you're trying to do. So mm-hmm. when you work with a sports person, let's say you've mentioned football. I work with a lot of footballers. And so I'm trying to get them to think about them at their best. So if you take, I don't know, a striker, he might say, well, I'm always on my toes and I'm constantly trying to lose a defender and I'm trying to attack the six-yard area and I'm going, going and um, supporting my midfielders. I'm working from the front, I'm working really hard defending from the front. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm playing lovely crisp balls out to the wing. I'm trying to get on the end of crosses and all the details that if you like football, you'd know about. But within that, I want to get some action-based words from players, some Mm-hmm. adjectives uh, things like alert alive lively relentless upbeat cool calm focused relaxed and this is wow. where i think the sports world works really well with this because you want them to come up with a couple of action-based words that make sense to them that they can then go and replicate on the pitch this mm-hmm. can be part of their mental framework so a player might say to me well dan now you've asked me that i would say sharp and alert i'm sharp and alert when i'm at my best and I'll get them to expand on that. Well, what does that look like? And, you know, they'll talk about sharp and alert body language, head up, you know, standing tall, on my toes at all times, really agile. And and we'll just make it as, as broad as, and as expansive as possible. Mm-hmm. So we, we're starting to build some real detail into what their high performance mindset looks like. The secret source with all of this, to, to, to break it down and, and, and to simplify it, the secret source is, once you've helped them create their high performance mindset, you want them to go out there and put that high performance mindset first. That's got to be what their number one objective, their number one goal, if you like. Now, in sport, sports people are socialized into outcome and performance goals. So their outcome goals is got to win, got to win, got to win. Their performance goals revolve around and a performance indicator such as, oh, I've got to score, I've got to score, I've got to score, I've got to complete all of my passes. And it's like, well, no, stop, hold on. Those kind of things we can't control. What we can control, for instance, is our mental framework, our high performance mindset, mm-hmm. you know, being alert and sharp, for instance, wow. or sharp okay. and alert. So let's just stick to being sharp and alert. What that does is it helps players to deal with the emotion of the game and to deal with that low mood and drop in confidence and things like that. If they happen to you, I've just got to stay sharp and alert. Just got to stay sharp and alert. That's mm-hmm. where our mental framework starts. Mm-hmm. And, and again, if, I, if we go back to me at my desk and I've got that two hours of writing and I've got a framework in my mind as to what high performance looks like, what my high performance looks like for those two hours, if I get distracted if if low mood hits me if if i if, if i stumble across writer's block or something like that i can come back into that high performance mindset 
Right. So that's pretty much your post from today. I believe you wrote about Mo Farah, right? And the obsession of winning and what can create more adrenaline and just you focus on the wrong thing. So I'm going to translate a little bit into the workplace and I'm going to use myself as a, as a Guinea pig. As you can see behind me, there is a sign that says, I lack the discipline because I do lack a discipline. I've got lots of great resilience at drive forward, but I don't think I'm that disciplined, that distraction. I want to go come back to the distraction because it's it's so relevant to manage the employees, especially right now, we're all working at home and there is hundreds of different distractions. But right now, if I'm looking at myself and thinking, will my dog bark downstairs? Will my kid run through and just start shouting? Or you know, will my phone ping and something like that? If I'm working, again, I've got loads of distractions. So what I understand here from you now is if I want to create a new training program or if I'm creating a slide deck or so, I should imagine this perfect workplace and me at my best, but then focus on those sort of behavior sharp and, and focus and alert, not as in, well, I'm getting distracted, go back to writing, do more writing, do more typing, look at the screen, don't look outside. And other than that, I should be reframing it as in stay sharp, stable, and that sort of thing. So rather than focusing on, let's say, I don't know, movements or activities with my body or like, you know, don't look through the window or don't look at your phone. I should reframe it and repeat like, stay sharp, stay alert, stay focused. Do I go to write? Oh, look, 100%, Raf. And, you know, thank you for that because, you know, as I say, I live very much in the world of sport and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm quite fluent and quite confident when it comes to interpreting this stuff for, for sports people, but less so perhaps for business and everyday life. But I, I think what you've reminded me there is, again, what we would call uh, achievement goal theory, which I've alluded to. If we break any task down into outcome, performance, and mindset, mm -hmm. uh, you've reminded reminded me that it's not so much having the self-talk around, come on, let's get back to writing. It's actually coming back to mindset. And and as you said, your high performance mindset might be your little subtle bodily cues or clues related to the key words that you've picked, or uh, it could be related to the environment you've that you create uh, for yourself when you're at your best. Mm -hmm. So it, it is, it's, it's coming, it's rather than saying, come on, let's just get back to writing, which look, you can do. Mm -hmm. If we were actually to identify, scaffold down and identify mini habits related to getting back to writing, it might yeah. be open your eyes a bit, have a sip of water, um, sit yourself up. You know, we were mm -hmm. all at school, when we were all at school and the teacher said, come on, pay attention. What did we do? We sat up. Yeah. So you might pay attention. You even might just write a random sentence just to get you writing again, you know, just to get that momentum clicking mm -hmm. back into gear, essentially. So, yeah, absolutely. I think we've dovetailed nicely because it's just getting back to the the, the, the mindset, the task, the process that underpins performance that underpins the outcome if we want to yeah. get that that piece of work done in two hours we need a great performance but to have mm -hmm. a great performance we need a mindset process it's yeah. it's executing that mindset process to deliver on the performance tasks it reminds me very much we just mentioned that you know a certain body posture when i was working as a manager in the hospitality that's my background i would often referring back to my employees that you know, in order to be a better sort of waiter or even a manager in the floor, you have to have a certain body posture. The chin is always up because as soon as you're walking like that, is you're losing the focus, you're losing the alertness, you can't see as much. So it was very simple reminder, the chin is up. If I do the wrestling and I coach my son now who's into the rugby, I always remind him that you don't look at the ground, at the mat. There's nothing interesting there. You, you're, you know, the body position has to be a certain thing in order to create a certain level of alertness. But the idea and the goal is absolutely stay sharp. 
but the small body cues like you call mini habits are, do help in prompting that mindset and getting you back into it right a hundred percent and you know i i i talk about you know when i strip back self-regulation techniques for sports people um i i talk a lot about self-talk but i also talk a lot about body or embodiment which mm -hmm. yes as i as i say to sports people yes it is body language but it's more than body language mm -hmm. it's, it's who you want to be it's how you want to portray yourself it's right. how you want to present yourself and look clearly over the last decade or so there's been in, there's been some intriguing uh, research done on this whether it's it it's in the realm of what we might call in science embodied cognition. So mm -hmm. think of cognition as mental process, embody as in body. So the embodiment of mental processes. So how our body is influences our mind. Um, and obviously you can you can point to the work of Harvard professor um, Amy Cuddy, um, yeah. who has a very popular TED talk. Now it should be stated that for a couple of years. After her TED talk, she unfortunately received um, quite a lot of, um, I think even abuse would probably be the right word from the scientific community who don't always warm to that kind of simplistic science. And uh, however, the last couple of years, she released a paper in 2018. Uh, I, I think they were struggling to replicate her original findings. But in 2018, um, she corrected a few things. And um, didn't know that, Sunny. Yeah, yeah, do do. It's really interesting. She's now back on the front foot. Uh, and I had an interesting conversation, you know, back into the world of sports in my own uh, podcast, The Sports Psych Show. I had a very mm -hmm. interesting conversation with a, a very prominent sports scientist and athletics coach coach called Steve Magnus, who um, has written a couple of books. And we talked about this. It's called power posing. Amy power Cunningham, posing, yeah. power posing. And, and, and she talked about how it can promote the release of testosterone right. uh, and subsequently help us feel better, feel mm -hmm. more powerful, and then subsequently uh, help our performance. And as Steve and I were talking, because Steve wrote a good article about this, if you if you type in Steve Magnus and power posing into to Google, he's written a really well, 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 really good article. And bear in mind, he's working with, like myself, top level athletes. He said, look, sometimes we've, we've sometimes science just doesn't isn't able to look at the, the minutiae of these details. Sometimes mm -hmm. we have to be pragmatic about these things. If an athlete says, stands on the start line and holds themselves like a champion, and they say, it helps me feel good, then we have to go with that. There is some scientific evidence to suggest that that links, as I say, with testosterone. But when you were at the front of the, 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 your team in that sales position and you've got your head up and you're holding yourself in that kind of business executive way, in that powerful way, you're influencing how how you how your body is experiencing the world yeah you're, you're influencing you're holding yourself in a powerful way you feel powerful you deliver powerfully and that's what people want and that's what mm -hmm. people need and that helps people feel more secure in the environment that you're creating and that's classic classic evolutionary psychology as well that you do want your leaders to exhibit competence mastery and a sense of strong support you know, so so let's let's be clear. I I, I think if nothing else, common sense suggests yeah. that how you hold yourself influences your performances and influences how other people feel about you. Yeah, I don't know the ins and outs exactly of it, and 
you're right. You're, you're absolutely right. It's sort of an instinctive level. It's it, it works. It definitely works for me as well. And I talked about and written in a few posts recently about having a Goliath in front of me. And I think some people misunderstood that to me, Goliath means, you know, I'm holding myself, I'm great or someone else. No, no, no. I'm thinking about it from this perspective. So if I, if I look at the sign again, I'll just refer back to that. That's my, one of my current Goliaths. The reason why I have decided to go live all of a sudden in the LinkedIn within the space of an hour without ever doing it, without testing the technicalities and everything, it's because I framed it and named it my Goliath. And what I mean by that is I understood as an athlete that if I face something that is bigger, overwhelming to me, something that I have to be 100% on top of my game, I grow from it and then I deliver. And so my own version of that is I'm envisioning myself looking up on that. So if I'm having a conversation with, with someone who I'm, who's my absolute role model, that's how I see myself. If I, an hour ago, I decided to just go with it all of a sudden, I just envisioned myself looking at this big challenging task that I haven't done in the past, but I knew that if I announce it and go against it, I'll grow from this experience. And for me, growth is everything. And so it, I think it works because it works for me and, and, and I'm sure it works for everyone else. Maybe the technicalities are different and maybe this is just a simply simple way of phrasing it. But you know what? In a working environment, we don't need white papers of 20 pages. We need a simple advice a tip that I can implement every single day that helps me to whether it's the battle the distraction or put myself in that high performing mindset when I'm stepping into the workplace by you know lifting myself up or whatever that means to me you know you've, you've got athletes who are performing different types of rituals before they step into the pitch for whatever reasons I'm sure scientifically I'm not sure if it was or not for them it does and as long as it triggers something additional whether it's extra adrenaline or on certain mindsets on reminding them something that's fine because at the end of the day, the goal is, in my opinion, is to perform well. And if that works, why not? Well, yeah, and it's, I, I think actually what you've said, I, I agree with all you're saying and I love what you're saying. I think actually if I can take you up on something you said right at the end there, the goal is to perform well. There's an interesting dynamic there in the sporting world whereby my, for me, I feel my job is to try to help players flex on that idea and broaden it let me mm -hmm. explain let's say a sport like football i want players to strive to play well and have their best possible performance so let me actually put that a little bit better i want players to strive to have their best performance mm -hmm. and strive to have their best possible performance Ooh, the word possible is new to me and 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 the reason being is because we come back to goal achievement and we come back to effective preparation. If my narrative, let's say I've got a game on Saturday. If my narrative, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday is, I want to have my best performance. I want to have my best performance. I've got to have my best performance. Got to have my, I've got to, you know, I've got to have my best performance. Fine. Okay. But again, let me throw complex and complicated into the mix. Complicated. The game is complicated. Every sport is complicated. They're difficult. Complicated is to be difficult. They're difficult. There's complexity, and we come back to the human system, the complex human system, in as much as it's complex to play well, uh, have my best performance, sorry, because mood happens to you. Luck dropping confidence happens to you. The game is complicated. There's the opposition. They're trying to stop mm -hmm. you from playing well and all this stuff. So when we take complicated and complex and we throw that into the mix, if I've just had the narrative, 
got to perform at my best, got to perform at my best, got to perform at my best, I set myself up for possibly a downfall, especially right. if I've made a few mistakes early doors, first five minutes, uh, or if the opposition have come out, come out the blocks quickly, um, or my teammates aren't playing very well. Uh, I feel flat. I feel down. I feel lethargic in the warm-up that players so often say happens to them. So we need a slightly more robust language around performance. I'm trying to perform at my best and have my best possible performance. Wow. Because ultimately, we worst way, we want to have a 6 out of 10, which for me is an average performance. Mm -hmm. What we want to do is get rid of the 4s and the 5s. The 4s and the 5s out of 10 kill athletic careers. They mm -hmm. kill a footballer's career. Because the coach just says, well, I can't trust this player. It's not good enough they come out the team. Whereas if we can turn fours into sixes, fives into sixes, sixes into sevens, mm -hmm. then then we've got more of a chance to high perform more consistently under pressure. You know, right. and and I guess we can play these linguistic games in the workplace. And 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 again, you can probably help me out here, but I'll, yeah. I'll actually come from my own playbook and then you can perhaps give me one is that the flexing of language, I remember going into, I mean, my background is I was a professional golfer and then a golf coach, and I became a sports psychologist after going to university and finishing my degree and my master's degree, and I became a full-time sports psychologist. And then about, I'd actually not worked that heavily in golf for a number of years, and about six years in, the position of lead psychologist for England golf came up, and it was a, you know, it's a fairly prominent role, and I got yeah. an interview. Um, because I have a strong background in golf, obviously. And I just went into that interview and I, I used that notion of goal achievement theory. I used that flexing of language. And I said, look, you know what? I'm going to go in there and I'm going to be ready and confident, ready to give my my best possible performance and confident about giving my best possible performance. It might be that I don't get the position and that's okay, mm -hmm. but I'm just going to go in there and be ready to give my best and my best possible. And then if the outcome doesn't happen for me, that's all right. That's fine. I can walk away with my head held high. Wow, but, you see what, but you see what we do, Raf, is, and this is very, sports people are very guilty of this, is they're so socialized into extreme language around performance and outcome. Got to win, got to win, got to win, got to win. Got to perform, got to perform, got to perform. Got to win my best, got to win my best. And actually, that's often to the detriment of their performance and mm -hmm. to the detriment of their outcome because they play tight and tense and anxious. They are far better going, look, outcome. I know I want to win. We all want to win. That's there. Let, let's just park that. Let's put that over yeah. here. We know what an 8 or 9 out of 10 performance looks like, whether it's a golf game, whether it's a football game, whether it's an interview, whether it's a presentation. I can picture that. I know what I've got to do, and I've got to prepare for that. But my job is that mindset process, and that's where I really need to be tough on myself. I can mm -hmm. be tolerant on performance, but right. I need to be tough on my mindset because we're so often tough on our performance and tolerant on our mindset. We need to shift that round. Yeah. I went into that England golf interview and I said, I have to get this right mentally. I've got to embody who I want to be. I've got to deliver in my game face. Okay. I've got to deliver with passion, with commitment, brave and bold and upbeat. I've got to be decisive answering any questions, even if I don't think, you know, I, I know the answer that greatly, I'd be decisive, right? Because that's that's a mindset. That's the way of doing it. Okay, I've got that. That's how I'm going to be. And then the performance just takes care of itself. But I'm yeah. getting the mindset right.
Hmm. You, I can I picked up something right at the end. Then there is a tendency to say, I need to have the right answers for the questions. You've reframed it and you have to be decisive and confident with your answers. And it changes the expectations and, and the whole mindset for you. Now, let me just translate it into maybe my scenario today and then a little bit to workplace as well. So because I decided to throw these live things into the mix, I did say it's going to be live, but I meant to do the small audience into one platform, kind of like safe and secure. All of a sudden, I decided to throw it out there. And that the complexity was added all of a sudden. And so I want to do my very best, if I'm honest with you, with that interview, because I know that the circumstances are just different. And I can't replicate my performance from the podcasting when the things are a lot more psychologically safe for me. When I know I can edit, I can chop, change, come back to it, and then release it or edit it. Now, I don't have that. I'm vulnerable here. And I'm relatively new to podcasting, if I'm honest with you as well. So I just added loads of complexity to it. But the expectation for myself that I have is I'll have fun and I'll do my very best because no matter what happens, I'm growing from this experience. That's all I'm asking. And my audience as well. And so that's sort of my approach to this. In the workplace, I think the same, the same thing happens. We have to deliver the presentation to our boss. And then all of a sudden, whoa, your slides are not working because there is no internet, right? So the performance that you've expected from yourself with the slides would be different than without. Now, how you hold yourself accountable, whether it's your best performance or best possible, what you've mentioned, it's that's the whole difference. And how the managers are then having conversations with their team at the end of that presentation, the question that you're asking around your best possible performance makes a huge difference. That one word changes the whole trajectory of the conversation. And it shows that you are actually empathetic towards me. Because you've asked me about my best possible means you understand that the worst circumstances versus that's not good enough or you were not good enough or the, the performance, what you mentioned, the performance, the performance wasn't good enough. It's a whole, we are taking a completely different avenue of conversation that just leads completely different avenue than creating the mindset. And so, wow, I'm very powerful. Thank you. Thank you for that. I love it. There is one thing that I want to come back to. You mentioned earlier about the in intensity when you, you mentioned you're sitting with your task and you're writing for two hours and your intensity drops down. And there is this concept of time management. And recently I hear more and more about energy management and being more mindful about what part of the day you are at what peak for yourself that will dictate the performance. Now, I've tested it with myself and now I know that I don't record any videos for my content past 4 p.m., 3 p.m. because uh, it takes me 20 attempts and I can't get it right. If I don't do it between 10.30 and 2, I'm not going to even record the video today because I'm going to waste my time because I know the peak performance that I have here in my mind, it's gone. Okay. What's, your, uh, what's your intake into time management versus that energy management and being mindful what part of the day you are and how you perform? Sure. Well, I, I, I think that i tell you what I think I know. I can relate it to uh, the uh, neuroscience um, mm -hmm. of performance in as much as if we think that in any performance moment, we want the front part of our brain, the neocortex, to be switched on. That's the part of the brain that sets goals from moment to moment, that uh, reacts, anticipates, uh, makes decisions. It's the intelligent part of our brain. One big problem, it's 4% of our brain. It's really small mm -hmm. and it needs a lot of power to work. It needs a lot of sugars and glucose. And whenever we do tasks, 
particularly mental tasks, we start to eat away at those sugars and glucose. So the fact that you don't want to do a podcast beyond 4.30, 5 o'clock makes complete sense because you've probably done X amount of work, spent X amount of time doing work throughout the day. You've eaten away at the sugars and the glucose uh, and you'll be tired uh, to be able to problem solve, make decisions, respond accordingly to questions uh, or, or to answers, to um, listen carefully and to answer any questions on the fly. Uh, on the fly. Um, so it, look, it makes complete sense. So I, I think it is about appropriate scheduling. Uh, I'm sure there's a wealth of knowledge out there as to when the most appropriate time of day to work is for individual people. Although I do wonder, as I'm speaking here, if it's more about trial and error, which it sounds mm -hmm. like you you do and you engage in. Um, it's interesting, you know, Raph, I find myself quite tired early in the afternoon for some reason. Mm -hmm. And then I perk up a little bit uh, later in the afternoon. Yeah. Although, upon reflection, that can be variable. I remember interviewing Dr. Scott Goldman, a very prominent sports psychologist, a good friend now. He's He works heavily in the NFL in America. And I, I just apologized to him profusely after the interview. We held it about 5 p.m. and I was exhausted and I was mm -hmm. brain dead. And I think my when you're tired, I, 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 I'm sure there's some research around this. I think your IQ uh, drops by about 10 points on average or something like that. So, you know, a lack of sleep when your sugars and glucose are eaten away. So it, it is important. I wonder if it's trial and error. I wonder if there's a bit of common sense in as much as if you've done five hours work already during the day, that's probably when, you know, it, it's not great to schedule an important meeting after that. But sometimes needs must and sometimes yeah. you have to. And, and if you've got that coming up, then maybe scheduling appropriate breaks whereby you rest the front part of your brain, you're sufficiently uh, nourished, uh, watered. Uh, there's pretty, pretty sure that there would be some evidence around that. Um, they are, so, they are, yes. Yeah. So, so I think I, I, I probably wouldn't add any enormous value for you and the audience there. I'm sure everything I've said is pretty common sense other than it's, it, it's good to know that, look, the difference between us and other animals is that we have that front brain. We've evolved to have that front brain and it's only a couple of, a couple of hundred thousand years old. You know, it's mm -hmm. relatively new and it's not, it's, you know, it requires a lot of power. So if you want to be sharp, if you want to be at your best, then having that switched on is necessary. So schedule your days, schedule your time, schedule the important stuff appropriately. Absolutely. So I'll go back to your posts. I've read one of those that you would be, um, and you just actually read it, so I've got it right. You would engage in autonomy supportive type of coaching. And this is something that excites me a lot because as a manager, we have to coach our employees all the time, although it's not comfortable and it's not something that everyone's good at because there was not enough support around it. So I would love to learn from you. What do you mean by autonomy supportive type of coaching? And so then I try to translate it into how managers can actually apply a very similar style in a workplace. Yeah, I mean, I, I always sometimes wonder if this is an authoritative versus authoritarian style um, of leadership. I think in an authoritative style, 
as opposed to authoritarian. You are giving your people space in various aspects of their working life. You're allowing them to make certain decisions. Uh, you're giving them autonomy, the freedom. Autonomy is freedom, the freedom to make choices uh, related to work. So I think that's vital. And, and certainly since the 1980s, there's been good research evidence to suggest that when people uh, experience self-determination, so they have autonomy, mm -hmm. some freedom, they're engaged in mastery, and whatever they're experiencing in the work in the workplace relates to them as people, then they're uh, happier and more fulfilled and, you know, potentially their performance is better. I do wonder if I was to back up a little bit, I'm very, whilst it might not always be practical, though I think in the workplace it is more so than sports teams, I'm very keen on individual specific participation, progression, and performance. And that probably lends itself more towards the notion of servant leadership. Mm -hmm. I think as managers, as leaders, we need to sit down with individuals and ask pertinent questions. How would you like to be managed? What does great leadership look like to you and for you? How can I add, add value um, to your working life? How can I make things better and easier for you? How can I help you to grow? How can I help you to perform? You know, how can I help you enjoy your engagement with your work? I think asking those kind of open-ended questions is vital. And I don't know if that comes under any, um, any specific umbrella. I just think it, it, it comes under... Um, more of an individual-based leadership model, if you like. You, you can yeah. come back at me and correct me there, maybe. That's certainly how I would do it. I think where I write my pieces on LinkedIn and uh, other sites is I would lean towards autonomy, but in an individual way. I would, I would certainly avoid being authoritarian. And mm -hmm. so when I when I write, I, I would be an autonomy supportive coach. In many respects, what I mean is I'm sitting down in front of a player and I'm saying, what is that you need from me? How can we co-create this relationship? How can we mm -hmm. co-create success for you? And then look for where the negotiation is. Because I know along that journey, along that relationship, I'm going to have to stretch that person. Uh, that player, if we're talking about sport, I I'm going to have to help them feel a little bit uncomfortable uh, so that they can stretch their comfort zone, to use a, a bit of a, a cliche now in sport. I'm going to have to stretch them in order to help them feel like that they can go beyond perhaps what they thought they could achieve. So I think it's sitting down with somebody, having those, asking those kind of questions, having a good open conversation that's psychologically safe. You've mentioned psychological safety. That's psychologically safe, that uh, respects their personality, their experiences, their thoughts, their feelings, that emphasizes strengths, um, that doesn't shy away from areas to improve, doesn't shy away from stretch, and respects the fact that somewhere along that journey, as a, as a, as a leader, as a manager, I have two dials, a stretch dial and a support dial. And I'm, I'm going to have to play with those dials at given times to help that person get the best from themselves, yeah. get permission to do that first of all, and then build from there. And, it, and if that person moves off that track, then we need to negotiate.
then I need to ask questions to understand, empathize where I can, and then co-create some solutions there. I wish I had this I, this advice when I started in as a manager. And for many years, I treated people the way I wanted to be treated. And it's this cliche saying, you know, treat others like you want to be treated. I think it's it's causing a lot of harm because I did that. And not everyone is as as willing to face challenges and go go quick, go go far, go hard. That's my background as an athlete. And I forgot that I need to translate it in the workplace. We all have different backgrounds, different different ways and different paths that led us up to where we are today as a human beings. And I didn't have this conversation with my employees very early and for the first few years, actually. How can I help you? And how would you, and I like that question, how would you like to be managed? Because the way I want to be managed and pushed is different maybe to someone else. Doesn't mean that my way is the best way or the way. It's different. It's what works for me. And if we can cut that, cut that noise and I can help you understand it now so you don't have to wondering how to manage and coach me, then we can go straight into what's really mattered and you can start stretching me and, and helping me growing. So very good advice. I love it. And I wish I heard it years ago. I think just the last quick thing to say there is I, I, I'm thinking out loud here and thinking of the stuff I've been considering and pondering and talking about on my podcast and, and writing about. There's a difference between leading at a group level and an individual level. And I've kind of laid out how I would strive to lead at an individual level. Mm -hmm. At a group level, it becomes more complicated because you know you're dealing then with your let's say dozen members of staff now you might have had those individual conversations and and you've set some processes in place and some objectives individual objectives individual processes you're 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 building your relationship with each individual so that's there but you're you're the leader let's say of a a, a team that you want to high perform so you're appreciating um, individuals or people on an individual basis on a team basis, looking, you know, taking the helicopter viewpoint and looking at the group of, as a whole, you know, I think it's it from a, from a cultural perspective, the cult, the landscape in organizational culture has tended to be around shared values and things like that. And I've been doing a little bit of investigation on this recently and I, there's, de there's definitely literature out there. Uh, on the from the, on the cultural piece mm -hmm. um, around actually, if we define culture from an anthropological perspective, which from the, where it stems from, culture stems in the sixties and seventies from anthropologists studying cultures out in you know various countries and locations, and they weren't just studying shared values; they were also studying or what what is shared shared mm -hmm. identity, shared values, et cetera. They were studying differences, what's different as well. So from a team perspective, we also, I think, need to be a bit more robust there. It's not just about creating what's shared or understanding what's shared. It's also about understanding what's different between right. us. Mm -hmm. the different experiences, cultures, faiths, backgrounds, um, nationalities, needs, wants, hopes, doubts, beliefs, expectations. Otherwise, if we're only interested in what's shared uh, and we start to, to produce these values without considering what's different, mm -hmm. then we might celebrate with this notion of we've got this on a team basis, we've done this this value-driven activity and we've got these five values, but then compliance 
can start getting involved. People start mm -hmm. to comply to that, even though they don't necessarily agree with the values. So, I mean, this could take us on, you know, we can't talk about this for for the next hour, but, <laughs> yes. you know, it, 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 it's respecting, it's working with individuals and it's working with a team and it's respecting that there's going to be big differences between the individuals in your team. And it's actually creating values, shared values, potentially, that are, are a big part of what you guys do as your team. However, it's onboarding everybody into those values. And it's, our, 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 you know, it, it's having great conversations with those individuals who say, I'm not sure about those values because they don't, I'm, I'm, that's not me. And yeah. it's trying to find some common ground. And right. sometimes it might be that you've got to negotiate a situation where that person really finds that, that value for the team very difficult. It's rife with complexity, but that's okay as long as you appreciate the complexity. It's when we just simply dive into, well, these are our values and that's that, that's where we can get ourselves into problems. Yeah. So it would be an example in a workplace because I know workplaces are very much like teams now, nowadays. They're multicultural. So it could be an example of that, uh, that maybe I was raising a culture when we are respecting hierarchy. And that's one of the, the core values that we have. And all of a sudden I'm coming into these, the company who is very much open space, no hierarchy, no management whatsoever. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't sign up for that. Not because I don't like that idea or maybe it's a wrong idea. It's just because this is not how I was raised and my values are like a polar opposite to what you're trying to explain and bring me on board. Do I got it right? I, I, I like that. I mean, you're talking about an extreme example, but what, what I like about what you said there is that somebody might say, it's not that I don't, it, it, it's not that I disagree with it or I don't like it. It's just, it makes me feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And when it makes it, you know, it, it, it creates what we would call in psychology, cognitive dissonance. So it's unlikely yeah. that that person won't engage in the kind of behaviors that has been normalized within mm -hmm. that workplace. Mm -hmm. And so that then requires the an ongoing communication between, say, the leader and that person to help them feel comfortable with that. The, with the, the 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 value that they've actually stepped into, or the mm -hmm. the, the the way the team operates, right. you know that that to, to step into that and, and and be able to accept that. But if we just say, "Well, I don't care what you experience there in that culture. You're here now. You've just got to get on with it." That to me is obviously poor leadership. That to me requires more of a again. I'm going to use this term negotiation, more empathy. Uh, listening, empathy, uh, and and um, you know brainstorming solutions in that situation. Absolutely, we've got only a few minutes left, but there is one concept I'd like to ask you about mm. that I've seen on your post, and you talk about yep. the narrative. B the abbreviation is BAS versus BIS, and foolishly I've written the uh, abbreviation and the full name, so but I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. I'd like to learn a little bit more about that because it was a fascinating post to me. Well, that's the, it actually comes back to when I talked about attention, intensity, and intent, uh, in many respects, that's the intent side of things. So BAS and BIS is, uh, wow, we're really getting into um, psychology now. BAS is the behavioral activation system, and the BIS is the behavioral inhibition system. And uh, uh, you, you're making me try to extend my uh, psychological knowledge here. It's, uh, <laughs> it's used, it's, it's by a guy called Gray. I think it's John Gray, although I may have that first name incorrect. 
and he in the late 20th century i mean he was doing a lot of work around personality and in simple terms so let's think about behavioral activation system to activate to go towards to move towards so in very in very simple ways the brain in very simple terms the brain moves in one of two ways towards or away from yeah you know in everything we do it, it really can be cut down to as simple as that we move away or we move towards I love simplicity, uh, yeah. approach or avoidant mm-hmm. and so our personality especially the personality trait of neuroticism which is negative emotion is very much uh, based around this and also extroversion so if we've got the personality trait of neuroticism which is negative emotion and extroversion which is positive emotion Okay, those mm-hmm. are two different things. This is where people go wrong. Positive emotion is not the off, uh, is not the opposite of negative emotion. They sit on two different continuums. Uh, very important to know this in clinical psychology. So, neuroticism, negative emotion, is your behavioural inhibition system. It's to stop. It's to pause. It's to and and it could be to retreat. Okay, mm-hmm. behavioural activation system is to move forward. Okay. Now, th- this kind of works. This is where motivation and em- and emotion work hand in hand. We set a goal. Okay. Mm-hmm. This is what I want to achieve, and so we set in we we set off our behavioral activation system. Right. So mm-hmm. this is my goal. This is what I want to achieve, and I start moving towards that. But something happens like we get told off or something like that or get get told we're not doing it right. So we're not moving forward in the right way. Mm-hmm. And that sparks our behavioral inhibition system. So we stop. Yep. A bit like fight, flight, freeze, right? Mm-hmm. We, we freeze. Okay. Immediately. Now we can withdraw. You know, we can start to go backwards. Okay. I'm not going to achieve that objective. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to go off and do something else. However, if something happens and we just go, oh, no, forget about that, or we, you know, we just deal with that situation, then, then we spark our behavioral activation, activation system again and we keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I remember, because you're talking about my LinkedIn post that I do every day, and I wrote one about a scene in, uh, I wrote one about James Bond, particularly topical right now because of the sad death of Sean Connery, right? He's a real yes. hero of mine. And I, I wrote about a scene in, Casino Royale, where with Daniel Craig as James Bond, and I think it's the opening scene where he's he's running after this bomber, and it's the one when they go up the crane and they're five hundred foot in the air. But th- the thing about the scene is Daniel Craig is there's bombs going off, he's getting shot at, just just uh, so many hazards. It's like health and safety, to, you know, to to put a joke yeah. on it, yeah. you know, it was just an absolute disaster. But he keeps going. He keeps going, he keeps going, he keeps going. He gets bullets flying out, keeps going, bombs going off, keeps going, people attacking him, he keeps going, fight and shoes, he keeps going. And and that's what your behavior. I said, look, that in many respects is what an athlete needs to have. Let's say a footballer on a football pitch, you just keep going, keep going, keep going. You stay in your behavioral activating system. You keep your behavior activated rather than inhibited. Now, there might be a time if, if we're going to go in a bit deeper, which I won't do for long, but if we go in a bit deeper, it might be that you unleash your behavioral inhibition system if you go a goal down because you go, hang on a minute, I might have to problem solve here. If your opponent is getting the better of you, we have a behavioral inhibition system, neuroticism, for a reason. Mm-hmm. Okay, It helps us to stop. 
to think, to assess, to judge, to find solution, to problem solve, to brainstorm, etc. So that's that that's that's why that exists, right? right? But for the most part, we want BAS, BAS, BAS. That's what BAS and BIS is. And that was Jeffrey Gray. That's his name. Jeffrey Gray, who's now <laughs> he's, he's dead 15 years, but he was a prominent English psychologist. And it's one of the, I think, fairly uncontested theories within personality science around that neuroticism mm-hmm. and extroversion piece. It's very interesting. The reason why I asked this question and love the breakdown that you gave me and you simply down is because from my experience, and I work as a feedback coach as well, is that people tend to focus on preventing from mistakes to happen. We don't want that to happen again. We don't want this to happen. We have too many complaints. I don't want to see any more complaints. Rather than let's move forward and we're going towards that direction, we are communicating in a way that shuts people in the track and sends the message that you have to avoid the mistakes. You have to avoid the negativity. And then, so in my opinion, it doesn't create the right mindset because we are now operating from the position of fearing of making those mistakes because we can't do that. We can't do this. We can't do this. I need to avoid and make sure that doesn't happen again. I don't want to see that happening again. Rather than, let's just, you know, we want more of that behavior. So like managers want more of those behaviors, but when they communicate, they're saying, I don't want those behaviors. So that's the reason why I ask. I want to understand if that's, if if I got the, uh, the concept right, and if we should communicate more through that BAS rather than BIS. I think I what I would say to that is we just need BAS and BIS are very instinctive. And mm-hmm. what we need are maybe better conversations around when this happens, how are we going to react and respond? We right. need to be we need to have, let's use the term instrumental here instrumental solution we need to be instrumental in our solution finding around regular challenges that we have in the workplace not so much i don't want you to do this i don't want you to do that more when this happens what are we going to do you know and that can be drawn back to the work of say gabriel and tingen the um psychologist at New York University, you know, one of the leading uh, psychologists on goal setting, she talks about mental contrasting. You know, when things go, we set a goal, but something's going to go wrong on that path to to reaching that goal. What things might go wrong? What are we going to do if they go, you know, what are we going to specifically do if they go wrong? So it's not so much saying, well, I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to do that. It's more instrumental having instrumental conversations around what we're actually going to do at given challenge points or when we're challenged, essentially. Does that make sense? Perfect sense. Thank you. And I'll actually check a little bit more about that mental contrasting concept and uh, I will do more research. Now, I know we need to wrap up, so I've got one last small question that's just out of curiosity. So you're working as a sports psychologist and there's tons of coaches out there in the world. Which one is your favorite or one that really embodies what you're trying, what you are teaching and coaching others? Which coach, whether it's a golf sport or football sport, embodies that um, coaching mindset and really understands the psychology behind it? Oh, wow. That's a question. Um, Probably no. Just because as a, yeah, who would it be? There's many, many, many great coaches. 
I, I, you know, it's interesting, Raf, because I don't want to be negative here, but I, but I, <laughs> but I still think there's so. Let me spin it positively. I think there's so much room for so many of even the very best coaches mm-hmm. to get better from from a mental perspective. Um, I mean, I've worked with Eddie Jones, uh, England rugby, and you know, obviously he's highly regarded. He is, and it was great to work with him, and he he pushed me, and that was great. And he's a, he's a wonderful leader and a successful leader. So I think. I think he does things in his way and does them very well. I think that probably my inability to answer this probably says that I'm too demanding as a sports psychologist. Yeah. I have to respect that the leader isn't a sports psychologist. Hold on, let me think. It, you know, maybe Eddie, maybe um, you know, you've got to look at what Jurgen Klopp has done at Liverpool. And I was waiting for it to drop because from, yeah. the out, from the outside, and especially for someone who is not within your field, it looks like that he gets it. Uh, so for me, I'm a great fan of Pep Guardiola because I support Barcelona since I was a kid. But then Jurgen Klopp comes in and I think he's kind of like one small step ahead of him in terms of that really coaching and forcing cream up psychological safety around him and then really focusing on people and treats them as individuals and really is focused on it. So that's, I was wondering if that name will drop in or not. Uh, I'm sure Kieran is happy to hear it. Uh, my best friend and my mentor who's a Liverpool supporter. Good stuff. Yeah. Awesome. That's it for me, folks. I have enjoyed this, this episode tremendous level and Tom's made loads of notes. I'm going to listen to it over and over. And where we can get in touch with you and learn more from you. I've mentioned LinkedIn posts that are there every single day almost, and they are tremendous value, guys. You've got to check it out. Or Twitter, both the same thing. You've written four books already. Um, you've got your coaching academy as well, so, uh, Soccer's Coaching Academy that people can sign up for as well. And it's a great value, lots of coaching nuggets out there as well. I've signed up for it myself as well. What else we can get in touch with you and learn more from you? Well, I'll give you the basic rundown. You've done a good job there. So my website is danabrahams.com danabrahams.com and I am interested. I've recently been contacted by a company. I'm going to be starting to work with their sales team. Um, so I am probably gently, slowly uh, uh, putting a foot into the into the world of into the corporate world. So if anybody's interested, so it's danabrahams.com. I uh, I can be found on LinkedIn, as you said, where I'm doing a post every day, which I also put on my Facebook page at Dan Abraham's Soccer. Um, I'm on Instagram at Dan Abraham's Sport. Um, I'm on Twitter at Dan Abraham 77. Um, I have two other <laughs> Twitter channels. I have uh, <laughs> at Abraham's Golf and at the Sports Psych Show, or at Sports Psych Show, which leads me on to my my uh, podcast, which okay. is the Sports Psych Show. If you just Google that, the Sports Psych Show, you'll find it. And then, as you said, I've got four books: Soccer Tough, Soccer Tough Two, Soccer Brain, and Golf Tough. You find those on Amazon, and. Uh, anything else? Last but not least, yes, my online academy that you're a member of that has over 100 videos for coaches, players, and parents to work together on the mental side of the game with regular email updates. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, no, look, absolutely. Thank you, thank you so much, Rafi, for giving me the opportunity to speak with you, and I hope that's been useful. Very useful, and I'll drop all those links into the podcast description as well, guys. So, we're very easy for you to navigate. Thank you very much. Thank you for being generous with your time and spending it with me and my audience. Have a great day on purpose, then. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Right, guys, that's pretty much it. Whoa. If you want more of that content uh, being, have access to 
early access to my content guys to my podcast interviews and to live shows like this one please consider become my patron that's on patreon.com slash raf baron i would really appreciate your support because i love doing those interviews if i'm honest with you i learn from them a lot and i hope you do as well however it comes at a price every single episode is about eight hours of my work to put it into it and if i can on that way i can only do an episode a week i would love to be in a position where i can do two three episodes per week which means I need to give part of this job someone else, which comes at the cost, right? So guys, if you consider supporting me as my patron, I would really, really appreciate it. It would mean a word to me. Also like, shares, downloads from the podcast. Everything matters, matters a lot. Every single thing helps me become a little bit better and move a little bit further. So thank you very much, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have a great day on purpose.